welcome to You Don't Know Mojack. My name is Ryan. My name is Brent. And this episode, we're discussing SST-55, the last Husker Du full-length Flip Your Wig. And I know it is a big favorite of yours, Brent, a big favorite of mine. Really looking forward to talking about it. It was almost hard to prepare for this episode because, you know, we want to find some factoids and stuff. And I just wanted to listen. I didn't want to, I didn't want to read, you know, while I was getting ready for this episode. It's just such a deadly album. Yeah. I've got one spiel that is kind of, I kept from last week. Oh, yeah, right. Uh, but um, why don't you hit me with your spiels first, Brent? Okay. Well, first, before I talk about the new blog post that we have this week, I want to talk about the old one from last week. The uh-huh. Last week we had Jeff Shrek, friend of the pod, did a best of angst blog post and we got a great reaction to that. So thanks to Jeff and thanks to everyone who checked it out. And thanks to everyone for all the comments about our kind of one year anniversary episode. That was awesome. We, we really appreciate all that. So thanks everybody. Yeah, definitely. And so this week, Ryan, we have an interview that I did with Ray Farrell. So Ray worked at SST from April of 85 to February of 88. You hear his name come up in a lot of the books as someone who was really loved by the artists and was really well respected by them. He was a a real go-to guy at the label. And I thought it was, I I did this interview a while ago, but I thought this was a, uh, a good episode to, to do it with, because I'm going to be mentioning him here in, in the episode. And he kind of, you know, this was one of the projects I think he kind of really worked hard on because he was the SST promotion department head. So he was, you know, the guy servicing college radio. And this was like the college radio album the year it came out. And he went on to work at Geffen and DGC as an A&R and marketing executive in the 90s. So Yeah, his name came up a few times when researching for this episode, for sure. So it's uh, it's great to have him contribute to the uh, the website. Yeah, so if you go to mojackpod.com right now, you'll see his wonderfully detailed answers that he gave to my questions. So thanks to Ray Farrell for participating in that. It's really great. Excellent. My other... Spiel Ryan is more of a recommend and it's about a book that you gifted me and it's also relevant to the episode too. It's been sitting on my shelf for, oh, I don't know, six months ago you probably gave it to me. It's the 33 and a third book on Bob Mould's workbook. Oh yeah, right. Written by Walter Biggins and Daniel Couch. I'm sure you read it since you uh, bought my copy when you bought yours, I I presume. (laughs) Yeah, those two guys kind of write each other a chapter back and forth for the book. Yeah, so if anyone hasn't read the book, it's uh, basically two friends who bonded over music corresponding with each other about the Bob Mould album workbook, uh, Bob's career, but so much more. It's A lot of it is about how we connect with music and the impact it has on our lives. And I just thought it was a really beautiful book about friendship and the power of music and I can't recommend it enough. Here's a quote that I pulled from uh, Daniel Couch. He said, Music helped me sort and solidify my relationships. Making mixtapes, playing in bands, going to shows, all of these things 
became the ways I connected with the people in my life. This is Dan's response to, you know, how music solidified uh, their relationships during their adolescence and beyond. He writes, The cultural loves and hates that we have as teenagers tend to stick with us emotionally so much more than almost anything we come to love after that. Because that band, that book, that movie has shaped us so much. And that notion really rings true to me uh, for many albums, and this is one of them. I would put in that category. This is an album uh, that I had in high school and I have a really deep emotional connection to. So I thought it was a good time to mention that book that I just finished reading as I was working on uh, Flip Your Wig. So thanks, Ryan, for gifting me that and go out and get that book. Even if you don't know the workbook album, which you know, one of the Bommold projects I'm least familiar with, I've really... What? Yeah. It's just one I never listened to a oh my lot, God. but I, oh my. Uh, it's really good. Yeah, Workbook is killer. They just had a 25-year reissue of it, and uh, like you get the double disc and the whole bunch of extra stuff. You got to get into that, man. Yeah, I, I did. I, I ordered it. It's really good. Excellent. Poison Years is really good, too. Yeah. came out uh, shortly thereafter, kind of a live combo-type album. That one's really good. All of Bob's records are his solo stuff really good there's a few that have some of um he has kind of you know a bit of a a second life as a dj for dance music and stuff and some of it has a little bit of electronica vibe to it but there's uh and i I mean he actually has some electronica type records i can't remember the name of the band um it's him and this other guy which is basically electronic music but even um even some of his guitar albums have electronic elements to them and they're all really good but i mean his last few records kind of when there's been a bit of a bob mold i guess resurgence yeah partially spurred by dave grohl from foo fighters those last few records where he's playing with worcester and narducey are you know bob is still in very very fine form they're excellent records yeah but but you can go all the way back to workbook and don't forget about sugar of course yeah, well, I love sugar. I'll be honest, I haven't as kept as as uh, up on his solar career as I should. I, I know the last couple are really good. Some of those, like Body and Song, I think is one that maybe was a bit of a turnoff for me. Yeah, well, before he got into this more solid trio with himself, Worcester and Narducey, he actually played with um, Brendan Canty from Fugazi, and I think he was on Body of Song and it's a it's a pretty good record too, but it's not like the last few, which are just pretty nonstop. Yeah. What do you have, Ryan? Well, like I said, I had one. Uh, I guess I've got like a, a leftover spiel, and it actually goes a bit back to our SWA episode, SST fifty three. We were talking about the lead singer Meryl Ward, right, and how he kind of came from. Well, maybe not came from, but was was uh, associated with like the L.A. Uh, glitter scene. Do you remember that? Right, like the Darby Crash era, maybe. Yeah, and there's actually a, a really um, unexpected, unintentional, another kind of Dave Grohl Foo Fighters tie-in. Now that we're talking about Bob Mould and those uh, and his resurgence, I guess because I think what I did is I mentioned in that episode about how 
the Foo Fighters had like that documentary called Sonic Highways, and one of the episodes was in L.A., right. where Pat Smear was from, and of course was from the Germs, and kind of went through that whole Rodney Bingenheimer uh, glitter scene that kind of turned into punk. So from that Sonic Highways documentary, like that's a good episode. There's a good, there's a good Washington D.C. one. There's a good uh, Seattle one as well on those Sonic Highways. Uh, documentary even if you're not a Foo Fighters fan and I'm not a big Foo Fighters fan at all but those are it's still a good documentary but it got me thinking I wanted to mention a bunch of documentaries and DVDs just because I they keep on coming up in my mind during these episodes but I forget to mention them we already have spoken a ton about like we Jamie Kano and uh, Filmage I think we mentioned Filmage a few times a few episodes ago I mentioned Sonic Youth in 1991, the year punk broke, and we have Dave Markey coming up on um, an upcoming episode, uh, the Painted Willie episode. Yep. And I wanted to rattle off a couple other DVDs just in case you hadn't seen them as well, Brent. Okay. So there's obviously there's American Hardcore. We've spoken a lot about the book on this podcast, but there's also the documentary, which is really good. Yep. There's the Salad Days documentary. Yeah. But have you heard of the Smart Studios story? No. That's about a studio that kind of Butch Vig ran um, with a, some other guys way back. And it, it, it speaks about kind of in the American underground, late 80s, early 90s, about a lot of the bands that came through there. And one of my favorites, Killdozer, went through there and yeah. recorded there. And um, so I would recommend checking out the Smart Studios story, if you've yeah. never seen that one. Have you ever seen It's Gonna Blow? I don't know what that is. That's uh, San Diego's Music Underground, 86 to 96. Good DVD to check out. Drive Like Jehu, Rocket from the Crypt. Favorite of mine, Truman's Water. Yep. Really cool stuff on that one. We've probably mentioned Salad Days before. I don't think that's we that have. One. Yeah, yeah, that's that one on DC. Yeah, really good. But there's also another one on DC that's not very very well known, I guess, relative to that one called Positive Force, More mm-hmm. Than a Witness: Thirty Years of Punk Politics in Action. If uh, if you want to go even deeper into DC in that scene, very cool. There's there's of course hype. You've probably seen hype before. Yeah, it's out on Blu-ray now. I've been thinking yeah. about, uh, I still only have it on VHS, so I've been thinking about grabbing that. I think yeah, it comes, got, I think there's some bonus stuff on it. Yeah, I got it on DVD, yeah. and uh, it's it's worth getting it. Yeah. So let's see here. The Color of Noise is another good one. Got that on one. Amphetamine. Yeah, that one's yeah. really good. Yeah. I think we've mentioned also, that one before. I think so. Yeah. I think so. I've only got two more. I've got a ton more, but I just wanted to mention these because I keep on forgetting about them. There's that uh, metal movie documentary by that guy. I think it's Sam Dunn. Yeah, the Canadian dude, yeah. Yeah, and he put out a TV show, Metal Evolution. Yeah, he also did the Alice Cooper one, and he did an Iron Maiden uh, 666, the, oh, what's it called? It's the it's the, Flight, it's, it's called like Flight 666, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, like yeah, it's the Somewhere Back in Time tour documentary. It's really good. Yeah. Yeah. And there and he also did a Rush documentary which is really right, good. Beyond but, the lighted stage, yep. yep. Yeah. But in his Metal Evolution series, he's got an episode on grunge in there. Okay. And and you will see like in all these documentaries, 
you'll see tons of people who either were tangentially related to the SST scene or influenced by and are always name check or mention. So these are great resources and great movies. But there's one other one that I wanted to mention to you that I didn't realize you could get. And I ordered it off of uh, Amazon. You can order the slog movie on DVD. I know I know what that is, but it's not. Is it a Dead it's, Kennedys related thing? No, no. it's uh, it's we it's a We Got Power Films presentation by Dave Markey, 1981, oh, 82. Right, right. It's the it's the L.A. Orange County uh, documentary, and it's got um, commentary by Mike Watt, Keith Morris, um, just a ton of stuff on it. It's dirt cheap. It's pretty cool, and uh, you can order it you know, all day long. So there's a good one that you, well, there's probably many good ones that you didn't mention, but one that I would throw in there that I'm pretty sure you have is the Chicago documentary. Not, oh yeah. Not the you weren't band, there. Not the band Chicago, but the scene. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You weren't, you weren't there. That one's yeah. awesome. Yeah. It's really good. I got that in like the, uh, the LP version or whatever. Yeah. There's also a, uh, Lots like an orange, there's an Orange County one. There's just, just tons, right? But these are ones that I know when I was going back through my notes, I neglected to mention them, and I would just commend them. I mean, you can obviously borrow them from me and whatnot, but uh, our listeners should check them out too if they like any of this stuff. Yeah. Right on, man. I'm, uh, I'm ready to flip my wig if you are. Let's do this. History lesson, part one. I mentioned this at the top. It was a distracting week to work on the podcast because i knew i had to you know do some homework and uh, i can always count on you to have done more homework than me brant but i don't know i was just like falling in love with this record all over again and i couldn't get enough and i was playing it around the house and everyone in the house was just rocking out to it yeah i think i texted you one night when i was listening to it and working on the pod <laughs> I, I was or working on my notes i I said, you know, man, what a great album. And it really is like it. I've, I'm sure I've said it before, but it's my favorite Husker Du album, hands down. A lot of that is, is the emotional attachment that I have to it. But it's, I mean, I also can step outside of it. And for me, it's their most consistent album. Yeah, it's not flawless. We'll get to that, I guess, when we talk about the songs, at least in my opinion. No, it's not. But even Bob in his book, See a Little Light, he remarks that it is the best Husker Du album himself. Yeah. It's pretty hard to deny that. It's uh, both Bob and Grant are in tip-top shape on this one. It's just, um, it's insane, the songs. Well, let, let's let's go this direction, Ryan. Since you mentioned Bob's book, I, I think I, I know the direction to go here. So here's a few th- facts I pulled from his book. Uh, it was recorded in spring 85 at Nicolette Studios. No spot on this one for the first time, uh, at least for their Husker du, or for their SST albums. And Bob says, no coincidence that Flip is the best album they made, like you just referenced. Uh, around this time, they made a business decision that would have repercussions in the future. That's a quote from Bob. Dig this. Out of, 12, out of the 12% royalty rate they got from SST, 25% of that went to the producer, normally spot. And this time, Bob and Grant produced it and so they split that some 60 40 for bob so when i say you know we should maybe talk about about that there is an element to this album of you know this the real start of the fracture of that relationship and 
and a, a big part of it is the comp you know the the competition between the two songwriters and there's more bob songs on this one too yeah well there always is on every husker do album but there's probably more grant songs than any other husker do album also yeah that's fair yeah i read that too i mean I didn't realize that Spot was getting that. I mean, I don't know how much money you would be getting from royalties back then, but I don't. I didn't realize he was getting that big of a percentage. Well, if he if he would have produced this one, he would have got a lot of money because <laughs> it yeah. sold fifty thousand units before the end of nineteen eighty five, uh, at least according to the Andrew Earl book. Yep. And yep. I mean, it was released in September, so just think about that. <laughs> You know, yeah, that's that's insane. Th- that's insane. Like they were, without a doubt, the biggest sellers at SST, especially by this point. Yeah. Another fact I saw, which kind of blew my mind, was that they put out Zen Arcade, New Day Rising, and Flip Your Wig inside eighteen months. Yeah, it's pretty nuts. That is that is mind-boggling. Yeah. So I mentioned Ray Farrell during our spiel there. Uh, so he joined SST in April of '85. And Bob calls him their new hope. He was the promotions manager at SST. He was making things happen on college radio. This is a Bob quote. Ray was the major reason we stayed on SST. Yeah, I saw that too. Because, I mean, they were being actively courted by major labels. uh, And major labels wanted wanted to take Flip Your Wig, right? Like Warner, I think Warner Brothers, before they signed up with them, they were like, you know, we will take Flip Your Wig. And I think it was Loyalty and also partially Ray Farrell where they were, you know, we're going we're gonna to still keep this one on SST. I also think uh, a big part of this album story is really intertwined with the label. Um, and here's some stuff I found on that. Do you remember that podcast series they did around the time of the Savage Young Do box set? It was called Do You yeah. Remember? Yeah. It's really great. Everyone should go back and check that out. Here's Ray Farrell being interviewed on that. This is a quote. We went for months with stuff being out of print because there was no money and uh, they were owed, owed money from the distributors. SST was running out of money because distributors weren't paying. And it's it's interesting. I think I, I've referenced a few times in the last couple of weeks, weeks, Ryan, I'm listening to that audiobook of the replacements Trouble Boys. Oh yeah. And I'm pretty sure it's Peter Jesper's Jesperson is talking about Twin Tone almost went under because like a few of the bigger distributors went out of business and one of them owed Twin Tone like $100,000 or something crazy like that and and Twin Tone had to eat it. So the solution was to start putting out a crazy amount of records uh, that the distributors would want and then Twin Tone would make them settle up before they'd ship them. Huh. How would they do that? Do what? Like how would they how would they know that what they were going to put out was going to be in demand? Well, you know what I mean. Think about SST for a minute. Like in the amount of stuff they put out. Sure, not everybody's gonna, not every distributor is gonna want that new October faction, but they're gonna want Flip Your Wig. They're gonna yeah. want a new Black Flag album. They're gonna want a new Meat Puppets album. You know what I mean? Yeah, I I recall us actually talking about that with respect to. New Day Rising, like I think that SST kind of held New Day Rising hostage or ransom yeah. or whatever with the distributors, right? They kind of talk about this notion a little bit in the book Spray Paint the Walls too. I found a thing about Jem, J-E-M, 
which is a powerful indie distributor. Uh, it went under around this time. And Bob's quoted as saying, it wasn't many months after that, everybody had to go to a major because Jem couldn't pay on the indie stuff. And a lot of the, a lot of the indie labels got shoved out at that point. On that Do You Remember podcast, Ray is kind of saying there was no real mail order to speak of at this point, so they really relied on the distributors. Hmm. Terry Katzman gets gets interviewed in that podcast too, and he says, Husker Du started thinking about a label change uh, because of this as far back as New Day Rising. Warner's wanted Flip Your Wig, but Bob wanted to give it to Greg out of a sense of loyalty. Yeah, exactly. And when I say, like, the two stories are really intertwined. Like I, I went on Paul Hillcoff's Husker Du database and read a bunch of like press clippings from this era. And there's a ton on there and they get asked about leaving SST and why they left. And if there's hard feelings in like every single interview. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> like yeah. they oh. must've been so sick of answering that question. Yeah, no doubt. What about, did you find anything about Reflex Records at the time? Well, I think they, they stopped around this time, did they not? Yeah, I think they packed it in uh, right around the time that Flip Your Wig came out. And if I'm not mistaken, it was the Minuteman Tour Spiel EP, which is their last release. So they were getting really busy, and there are, there are a number of quotes that kind of discuss how it wasn't the SST package where Husker Du was one of the bands. It was Husker Du headlining now, like, yeah. very regularly, right? Yeah. These were Husker Du shows. And if I'm not mistaken, too, like, didn't they, wasn't, you know, the tour right before they recorded this, too? They did, like, a, a three-way headline with Meat Puppets and Minutemen. And they did that for, like, a week or something like that. And something then like they, that. yeah, and then they recorded this in the spring released it in September, and then I think went to Europe. And by the time they got back, there was a big article on them in Spin that year in December of 85. And it was starting to get out that they had signed to Warner Brothers. When they went to Europe, that's when they played at that Camden Palace? Yes. Yeah. Pretty famous live video, bootleg, I suppose. Yeah. Is that the video where Bob is, he's not playing a V, he's playing like an Explorer, right? Is that the one? Uh, to my recollection, he's playing a V, but I could be wrong. Is he? Okay. I saw yeah. a video lately of that era where he's playing an Explorer. I, I don't know. It was, it was weird to yeah. see that. I could be wrong, but I remember. I, I think he's playing the, the Ibanez V. He's got the V in that one. Okay. Yeah. There was a video around then when he's playing an Explorer, and I hadn't seen it before. Not yeah. that I've seen it for video, but the V is so iconic. And then, yeah. you know, the last 30 years or whatever... His strat the, is the uh, strat, so, yeah. so interesting to see a different guitar. Do you have any more history lesson part one, Ryan, or do you want to move on? Talk about the, the good stuff, the tracks. <laughs> no, I'm good. History lesson part two. Let's talk about the album title for a minute, Ryan. Do you know where it came from? I believe it is a Beatles board game. Yeah. Am I right? There yeah. you go. And Husker Du was a band named after a board game, too. So Yeah. There is that comparison every now and then in the articles about Hart and Mold being like Lennon and McCartney. And so they were definitely, well, I don't know if they were definitely, but there are some references where the Beatles 
reference to the you know the flip your wig board game was kind of playing up the Lennon McCartney type of references. Who knows if there's any truth to that? Can I start us off with a Michael Azarad quote from our band Could Be Your Life? Please do. Except for the two instros tacked on to the end, every song sounds like a hit in some alternate world where the rivers run with an equal mixture of battery acid and honey. Except for the baby song. We'll get to that. You want to do the tracks? Let's go track by track. Sure. And then we'll do the uh, the artwork and stuff. My first quote that I wrote down at the top of my page here before before we get into the tracks is that this is two songwriters at the top of their game competing with each other. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I agree. And it only got more competitive, too, on the Warner Brothers records. Yeah. If you look at the credits on those, like, it's a shame we won't get to go into those in any detail on this show, but people should obviously check out uh, Candy Apple Gray and Warehouse Songs and Stories. Um, You're missing out if you don't check those out, too. Track one on side A, Flip Your Wig, written by Bob Mould. My notes say, it doesn't get any more classic Bob than this one. I wrote, opens with an unmistakable sound of Bob riffing. It's a killer opening track. Awesome backing vocals from Grant. Uh, There's a bunch of bootlegs from this era and they opened with this song every show every night of this tour and sometimes grant would would sing like every lyric harmonize the whole way through the song uh on the studio recording i love how he sings the verse before the chorus like he gets a whole verse which i think is really awesome considering their relationship was starting to fracture it's you know it just shows you that the music was took priority right over yeah individual exactly. ego um so i love how he he sings that verse before the chorus and then the solo i love solos that have like add part to the song you know what i mean do you know not what, really what, what, what do you mean because i mean not that all solos add to a song but they're always supposed to so what do you mean by that well sometimes they're just soloing over top of the main riff you yeah know what i mean oh okay okay yeah yeah, yeah. this one has like that lick that is like a new part. Go yeah. solo and then it does that kind of that it's lick like the, and then a solo like the, and then a lick again. It's kind of like that ascending hammer on hammer off, I should say, kind of walking down the I don't know if it's the fretboard or maybe it's just uh down this down the uh yeah. down the neck. It's really good. You know, for for a band that's really not known for soloing and for like heady instrumental sections in their songs you know they're more pop oriented i thought that was really good and i I love stuff like that there's really good bob solos on this whole record yeah i just think this is a perfect song it's great yeah it's pretty deadly second track every everything written by grant hart what'd you write well (laughs) for flip your wig i went classic bob yep for every everything i went classic grant but the other thing was like what a one-two punch right yeah it's insane it's a killer track i love the ending they kind of have this panning guitar lick that almost like swerving from the left to right you can really hear it on the headphones and i just wrote amazing songwriting amazing vocals like his vocal performance is really great on that one yeah i agree third track makes no sense at all i kind of feel like we discussed that one a few episodes back on the the single do you have anything to to add well, yeah, we we did go through this one on SST 51. The only thing to add is, I mean, it just, it's a 
pretty hot, pretty strong start to a record to have these three songs back to back, right? The sequencing on this album is good. I feel like side A is kind of the corkers and side B is a little bit of the snoozers, maybe a little bit. Woo. Well, okay. There are seven songs on both sides. Side A has more good songs. How about that? Yeah. I'll put it that way because side B has got my favorite song on it. Okay. Hate Paper Doll, a Bob track. It's a jaunty little song. I've always loved it. It sounds like something almost like the real Mackenzie's could do. It's almost got <laughs> like a, a it's like almost got a Celtic sound to it. Yeah. Uh, I've always loved how it ends with uh, Bob and Grant kind of echoing each other back and forth, and then with Grant going that hate paper. You know that part? Yeah. It's just always stuck with me. It's not my favorite song on this side. It's probably actually my least favorite song on this side, but I do like it. It fits well in this side. I agree that it's it's the weakest song on side one, for sure. Yep. And then now you, you've got, like, you know, a new benchmark for Grant, for sure, with Green Eyes. Yeah. Uh, I just wrote it. Such a beautiful song. One of the very best that Grant ever wrote. I love the kind of off-key tension of the chorus, and then it kind of breaks it by going into the really pretty verses. I, I really like songs that do that, and this, this one does it really well. The thing that struck me for this song, this time around listening to it, that I'd never picked up on before so distinctly, which was Bob, the tone of his guitar, the wall of sound guitar, where he's, like his chords, he's hitting all six strings, right? Yep. And it really sounds like it is recorded very hot in the studio, and it works, it's it's such a a full wash of sound behind all of those lyrics it's really really well done yeah it's a it's a great song track six divide and conquer this is a classic bob rager uh it's one of my favorites if they're done right songs that save the chorus until the end can have a really epic feel to them and this is a classic example of that i always think of this lazy cowgirl song called sylvia it's on the one of the last albums they did uh, as the cowgirls or maybe the third last called rank outsider it's just like it's like this there's like eight verses and then it just goes into this epic chorus and it's just awesome i love songs that do that yeah it kind of, this song kind of has just like one lick yeah it's kind of it's kind of new day rising-esque but my note for this one it just says bob is going full bob on this one yeah the lyrics are really awesome too I, yeah. I'm not sure if yours comes with a lyric sheet, but mine does, and I was... Yep, it's kind of like uh, a commentary on, well, dividing, conquering, but also on globalization, I guess. Yeah. And it's pretty ahead of its time when you think, you know, mid-80s, they didn't have, you know, cell phones or internet or anything like that. The wa the world was not as small as it is right now. Yeah. So it's, it's pretty ahead of its time lyric-wise, I thought. Uh, and then the last track on side A is called Games. It's a Bob Mold song. It's the longest oh, song on the album. Uh, great recording, cool overdubs of Grant kind of humming along. Uh, it's interesting to listen to some of this stuff in a really deliberate way. I've, I've probably expressed this sentiment before on the podcast, but it, it's something I don't do enough of anymore. And like just sit down and listen to an album. I just never do it. I'm always multitasking. You know what else it is too? What's that? 
so I completely agree with you. And I go back to like my observation on, on green eyes about just like listening really deeply and intently on the way that Bob's tone and the way that he's playing those chords for the whole song. But part of it is for me too much music. Yeah, for sure. When I was a kid, I mean, a couple of dozen records and dub tapes and you played them to death because that's all you could have and you had to save up to buy one more overpriced CD or whatever. It was just impossible to get anything good. And now we're we're, we're spoiled yeah. and you got to pound through the new records, right? Yeah, you're absolutely right, for sure. So it's an excellent excuse to really just you know, sit with a record for some time. Yeah. Yeah. It's something I never do. I have such a short attention span these days to, you know, other than doing this podcast, I never listen to like an album two, three, four times in one week. I never do it. You, you know? know what though? I, I know exactly what you're saying, but I do get a record now and then. And it, it's actually, it's actually pretty frequent. Uh, I just wish I had more time to listen, but every now and then I'll put on something and I'll listen to it and I'll go, whoa, I have to listen to that again right now. Yeah. And um, those are still pretty special records when you come upon them. I, I always wait for them to come along and they just, I don't know. What? It's it's not that there's not good records, it's just there's too many of them. Well, I mean, I think we're agreeing with each other in different yeah. ways. All right, okay. let's flip this record over. Find Me, first song on side two is a Bob song. I'm I'm assuming this is this is maybe one of the ones that you like the best. You said your favorites on side B. I'm trying to figure out which one it is. Ooh, Find Me is definitely one of my favorites. I love the noisy, intense building kind of feel of it, but it is not my favorite okay. on the record. Nope. I I wrote this is kind of an unsettling song. It's a weird one for Bob. It kind of reminds me of something he maybe would have done with Sugar. Yep. I could hear this exactly. on I can hear this on Copper Blue. Yeah, the dissonance is there for sure. Uh, track two, the baby song. Uh, so Grant wrote this. Apparently, he had had a a what he calls the, calls a love child with a wonderful woman. Yep. <laughs> and this was his tribute uh, to celebrate that. I suppose. I think it's a flute and vibes, or like a. It's almost like I don't know what you call them, like a kid's flute, like one of those things with a that you. It's like a slide whistle. Almost. There you go. That's yeah. That's what it is. So yeah. I had I had this on tape. I still probably do have the cassette of it. And one time when I was this is back when I was partying hardy all the time and you know before I was married and stuff. I was having a house party and I was pulling tapes off the shelf and uh, showing to the to this music lover at the, at the party like should I play this one? Should I play this one? And I pulled this one off and he and he goes uh, that's a wicked album except for the fucking baby song. <laughs> so I always think of that when I when I hear that. Yeah. You know, I I get, you know, a little tribute to your own kid. I totally get that. But all I'll, I'll I'll just say one more thing about the baby song and leave it at that. I'm glad it's only 41 seconds long. Yeah. Next track, Flexible Flyer by Grant Hart. Awesome. Always loved the song. Awesome vocals, killer chorus. Yeah. So the fourth track on side two has to be your favorite private plane bingo oh we're gonna have problems at the ballot result this is just a decent track for me oh well you know i wasn't going to advocate for it to be the ballot result uh, but it is my favorite song on this record 
it's the breakdown at the end, the harmonies, the lyrics, everything. There are just it, there are a ton of songs on this record and prior Husker Du records where there is a like a direct lineage to college rock for you know ten years to these Bob Mould and Grant Hart songs. But this one in particular for me just reminds me of a ton of stuff that came out over the next 10 years and they still can't, they couldn't top this one. The breakdown and uh, the lyrics and the harmonies, awesome. Well, this was the College Rock album. It spent a year and a half, or sorry, spent half a year on College Music Journal's charts. It's getting major stories in like Cream and Spin and stuff like that. A lot of Critics polls had both this and New Day Rising in their top ten. So Yeah. It's, it, it's the college rock album. The fifth track, Keep Hanging On, is a Grant Hart track. It's a good song, but for me it's his weakest on the album. It's the one where I said, you know, there are classic Bob, classic Grant songs. Yeah. This one, I don't know. The thing that came to my mind is it kinda seems like Grant Hart doing a Bob Mold song. That's a good point. He sings like Bob, right? Kind of? I don't know. He lets his voice break, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, The sixth track, one of the two instros at the end, is The Wit and the Wisdom. They like to put stuff like this on the end of their albums. I'm thinking like the end of Zen Arcade and, you know, that How to Skin a Cat track on New Day Rising. Mercifully, The Wit and Wisdom is still more like a song than those other examples. The last track is a little out there. This one... I thought was almost Black Flag-esque. It's noisy. Yep. It's got a really noisy solo, and there's like a bell in it, which is interesting. Sounds like a bell. Maybe he's just hitting the ride. I'm not sure. But yeah, the the last track, Don't Know Yet. I actually, I think, probably prefer it to The Wit and The Wisdom. I don't love either song. That one's got backwards drums, backwards guitar. It's definitely a nod to the kind of 60s roots, maybe. Maybe to the Beatles. Yeah. Uh, I mentioned I was on the Husker Du database, and this is from a, a magazine out of, I think, L.A. called Rocket, not to be confused with the Rocket out of Seattle, but there is articles from that. This is like Rock It. <laughs> <laughs> this is from September of 86. Bob says, A producer's job is to be critical of the performance and the arrangements and to have an idea of how the album should flow from start to finish. I think I have a better grasp of that than Spot or anyone else. I guess, first of all, I, I admire Bob's confidence and his bravado. But I also think he's right. Some bands can self-produce and some can't. You know, a lot of people don't actually know what a pro- what producers do. And I think this kind of says it as well as I've, I've heard it said. This is what pr- producers do. They are there to tell a band when they're going off track, when they're being overindulgent, when... Parts need to be cut when songs are too short, too long, when a chorus should be repeated. Uh, They're there, I think, to help with the mix, to help with sequencing. And some bands just can't do that. And I I think Bob's right. I think he can can self-produce. And and Grant, as well, acted as a producer on this album. Yeah, I agree. And sometimes, you know, when you see a, a producer on a record a particular producer that you're familiar with and you have liked the records in the past, sometimes it can be a pretty good calling card for another good record. Yeah. While some producers write, you know, like someone like Bob Ezrin is balls deep in anything he's involved with, you know? Oh yeah. 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 Or Bob rock or whatever. Yeah. 
those guys. Yeah, but that's way different than what I'm talking about. Yeah. I'm actually talking about something like, you know, I mentioned at the top of the show, that documentary, The Smart Studio Story. Right. Like those those old records that uh, Butch Vig and crew were in on, you know, before he was in Garbage and before Nevermind took off, those records from Smart Studios, I have a ton of them. They have a sound and, and they're pretty reliable. While a lot of producers are heavily involved, it, well, sometimes they also are, are the engineer. But, yeah, you know, getting the sound is pretty crucial too. Yeah. Do you want to talk about the artwork? Yeah, let's do it. The uh, the cover, It's interesting. I mean, I was trying to figure out how you would actually, you know, give credit. But, I mean, it, it is on the inner sleeve. It says, you know, cover design by Fake Name Communications. That's Grant Hart. But the photography is um, by another guy, Bruce Christensen. But it, it, I guess what Grant did is he took a photo of... Like he took a photo that Bruce had taken of it looks like almost like a cake, I guess, and then superimposed the Husker Du name on it. I don't know. Well, I think Grant made this cake design. You know. What oh, I mean? Okay, and then and then Bruce took the photo. Yeah, I mean the, the Husker Du logo was put on after the fact. I would say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's okay, no, the, I get it. Not part of the original photo, but he made this. I would say. And it, it's not. It's not a cake either, is it? Like it looks like granite or something. It does, but these are this is like icing sugar. The the yep. flowers and the the words "flip your wig" are you would buy this lettering to write "Happy Birthday" on a birthday cake. Yeah, and I don't think you can even buy this lettering anymore. <laughs> no, but it's really like it's candy for sure. It's really weird. Again, <laughs> I've never even I've owned this album for probably close to thirty years, and I've never looked at this cover and thought, "What is that?" Isn't that weird? Yeah, no, I, I, I can relate. Yeah. I can relate. I've had that happen to me more than once doing this podcast. I'm really grateful for it. Yeah. And then I've never noticed the back, which is, I guess, like just a rose where the petals have been uh, pulled apart. Again, it kind of looks like it's on, I don't know, granite or something like that. Yeah. It works. It's totally fitting for the record, though. Oh, yeah. There it is. Slide whistle right on the back. Yeah. Yeah. This is... Uh, this looks exactly like Flip Your Wig Should Look. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned before, produced by Bob Mould, Grant Hart, engineered by Steve Felstad, recorded Nicolette, March to June 85. Just pulling out the insert here. Back cover photography by Dan Corrigan. And then um, the thank yous are interesting. They thank uh, Lou Giordano, who is uh, a producer out of Boston. Yeah. And he ended up being pretty closely tied with with sugar later on, I believe. And they think twin tone. Well, I think they shared an office with them. Yeah, right down the hall. I've always liked this. Well, I shouldn't say I've always liked. I do like this line, though. Special thanks to Mike, Kristen, and Jerry for keeping our wigs attached. That's a good one. You don't want to. You don't want to flip your wig too much. You sure don't. Why don't you tell me what the ballot result is? Ballot result. Well, I'll tell you what my pick is. This doesn't mean it's the val ballot result, but I would go with my favorites are Flip Your Wig, Every Everything, Green Eyes, and Divide and Conquer. Myself, I would probably go with Divide and Conquer. I mean, I was walking around all week going, ah, 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 ah. <laughs> <laughs> like it's an earworm, man. Yeah. You know what, though? I, I was, I was 
prepared to let you pick, but I'm going to throw one vote for Flip Your Wig. The title it's track. Flip your, it's, it's Flip Your Wig. Yeah. It's Flip Your Wig, man. It can be. I'm okay with that. I think it's Flip Your Wig. Okay. Let's do that. Done. Very cool. What a great record. Yeah. What's next week, Ryan? Speaking of great records, now for something completely different. <laughs> Next yeah. week. Are we going God. from hero to zero right here, Ryan? Hey, you know what? I'm going into this with an open mind. Me too. It's that it's SST fifty six, the second factionalization by October Faction. Well, if nothing else, it'll be interesting. Exactly. Hey everyone, thanks for listening. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, all at Mojack Pod. We post all kinds of info and tons of pictures of the bands and albums we discuss on the show. Our blog is mojackpod.com. Please check it out for some exclusive content. If you like what we do and want to support the podcast, the best way to do that is to tell your friends about the show. Subscribing, rating, and reviewing on iTunes is also appreciated. We love hearing your opinions, corrections, and feedback, so feel free to post on our social media sites and send us an email to mojackpod at gmail.com. Thanks again for all the support, and we hope to see you next week.